You wanted the best. You got the best. In strong language and adult content. The hottest podcast in the world. Slowly we rock. Hey, welcome to Slowly We Rock, Metal's funnest and dumbest podcast. Uh, we are finally unleashed on the general public to go and hang around in people's gardens and parks, drinking booze. But instead, we're going to chill in our flats and homes and bring to you another delicious podcast. Uh, I, as ever, am your host, James, and I'm joined by Dan and Lewis. Uh, say hi, guys. Hello. Hello. I waved as Did- well, then. Yeah, you didn't say hi, guys, as well, which I could tell was a moment's hesitation because I think Honestly, you were both thinking I, of I, making that it joke. It was a real 50-50, and I didn't do it because I thought Lewis would. <laughs> yeah, it's a Pavlovian response. I've it's just quality humour, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Welcome to Metal's <laughs> Funnest and Dumbest Podcast. Um, you want it all, you can't have it, because we're talking faith no more, but we are not talking about the real thing. No, we are talking about their pièce de résistance. <laughs> We're talking cover bands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, <laughs> we are talking about the Faith No More masterpiece, Angel Dust, uh, one of our absolute favourite records. Um, we're going to keep on this trend of talking about music we actually enjoy. Uh, Weird. Because it's a lot of fun. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we'll keep you teased and t- uh, tantalated. Is tantalated a word? I don't know. We'll keep you teased. Now. Tantalise. We'll keep using tantalise and uh, let's just get the general chit chat out of the way. Guys, how are we doing? It's sunny. It's bright. We are not we're not recording this podcast it bathed in darkness. I know, it's weird. Like, it feels like there's hope in the world again, bit well, by bit. It's really strange. Wouldn't go that far, but it is uh, nice uh, to have the sun. Well, <laughs> the big boat's out of the canal. Uh, that happened since our last Yay! episode. Honestly, I was hoping it would still be stuck just so we could talk about it a bit more. Uh, I was really... Yeah. Like, I genuinely wanted that boat to stay there for as long as possible. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, because of yep. how stupid a situation it was. So your rival like, shipments weren't meant to get where they were going. Yeah. <laughs> also, the simple fact that... Uh, some boat just being blown into... Uh, off course, from Bocca Canal literally fucked up capitalism and world trade for like a week and cost like billions and billions of pounds like i love that just because someone wasn't paying attention to what yep. they were doing it adds like 10 to had- 12 days to the journey just for uh, each of those boats <laughs> if they want to go around africa instead of through the canal and they uh, like they essentially managed to pull off an austin powers <laughs> i was waiting for, <laughs> for them to be completely like bridged <laughs> Uh, round of applause for tugboats good lads yeah go on tugboats this one's for you son <laughs> always been a fan of tugboats yeah, I just want to dedicate this episode and the next at least five episodes to tugboats yeah just tugboats in general as well mm-hmm. and if, if you know anyone that uh, is a tugboat then please we'd love to hear from you Portland Bill or them uh, there's a wrestler called tugboat there's that Pearl Jam uh, song tugboat captain yeah to be side to love boat captain <laughs> I think that's it's about it, self-love. <laughs> Good grief! Any man is the tugboat captain. I just keep thinking about how stressed out, but how stressed out that boat captain must have been getting the boat stuck like that. <laughs> so, Lewis, have you heard this conspiracy theory? 
No. Uh, I figure, you know, there's not enough platforms for conspiracy theories. Yeah, in the do we want to give us oxygen? <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, I won't go into the, uh, the depths of it, but you know how um, the conspiracy theory QAnon thinks that anything that happens is a sign that. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. That the deep state is going to be overthrown and Donald Trump's going to save the world from uh, cannibal pedophiles. Uh, there was a theory that this boat. <laughs> Uh, was actually transporting children and that Monica Lewinsky was captaining the boat. <laughs> yeah. But I, want, I feel like she doesn't have the best of relationships with the Clintons these days. Just don't. So I don't know why she would be captaining this boat. Either you never suspect a, it, would you? Like, you doing them a solid or she's actually working against the deep state and has like hijacked the captain. The, uh, the boat is doing like a Captain Phillips type situation. I'll tell you why, Jim. It's because when all of your conspiracies have to, for some reason, revolve around the Clintons, but you know absolutely nothing about <laughs> politics in that era, the only things you know are Bill, Hillary, and Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Benghazi and saxophone. <laughs> but that has absolutely- No, that's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Like, I, I like a good conspiracy theory, but obviously the whole QAnon stuff is pretty insane and is genuinely having, has had some horrible knock-on effects in real life. Oh, yeah, fuck, fuck those people yeah. straight to the grave. But um, why, if if this was Monica Lewinsky driving this tugboat... And, no, driving the, the, the ship. No, yeah, she boat, got right? a tanker yeah, yeah. stuck, according but, to these lunatics. So so she was driving a boat full of uh, children to be yeah. sold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did, is is part of the theory that she purposely held up the world's trade as like part of this? You think if she didn't purpose, they'd rescue the kids, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, they had a week. They had a week. Yeah, and, and if you had, if if your whole like, if part of your goal was to hold up the world's like shipments of fucking any transportation that would be a really bad time to smuggle anything when the, the world's spotlight is on well, I was going right? to say I've never smuggled people but <laughs> I'm not sure doing it with the most attention any container ship has ever had uh, is the best way to go about it I want the Personally, Netflix I don't like, know, follow man. up to Ozark and Breaking Bad where it's down <laughs> and he's just a regular podcaster who's down on his luck and has to get into people smuggling yeah. <laughs> it was the only option. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty oh, fighting gnomes. There you go. Now we'll work on the title. We'll have to come up with it now. <laughs> Netflix have a very low bar for um, commissioning projects, so <laughs> Sorry, we don't need to worry about it. <laughs> um, how have you guys been? Uh, I'm going to start with Dan this week for a change. Normally I go to Lewis, but um, I, I want to know how Dan's doing. Uh, Dan, you're also wearing, sorry, speaking of tugboat captains, because you've got like, <laughs> you've got like a nice knitted jumper on, and, and you've with, got like with the, the beard. With the beard. Pretty, I was yeah, waiting for this. Well. I was surprised you hadn't mentioned earlier. Yeah, because yeah, I've got this knitted jumper thing energy. Uh, I look like a, a sea captain. I look like I could be in uh, like William Defoe's part of the lighthouse. Just need like a, yes. a pipe and a hat. Um. I couldn't be Robert Pattinson. I'm not going to kid myself. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good. Um, speaking of conspiracy theories, you might as well get this bit out of the way now. I think we teased a uh, discussion about a legendary uh, bold actor slash character. 
Uh, yeah, do you well, want to people get... be left on a cliffhanger at oh, the I end know. of the recent episode? <laughs> Upwards of four people have been uh, haranguing <laughs> us, trying to work out who it could be. Um, and that's including the three people on this podcast. Uh, just want to give a shout out to FBI Assistant Director Skinner from uh, The X-Files. Um, Great character. Amazing. I've been re-watching The X-Files recently because um, it's all on Disney+, Plus, including uh, the films. And mm. it's one of the first TV shows I've ever got in. It's one of the first shows I was allowed to watch, probably like around season five or six of it. But it was one of those things where my parents let me watch it. I was like, oh, I'm you know, becoming an adult now. Like it felt like a grown-up TV program to be allowed to watch. Um, I could never watch it. It was too scary. I would try and watch it in bed at night, like secretly. And I'd make it through the cold open. Then the title card would start with the music and the imagery. And I'd find yep. it too unsettling. I'd have to turn it over the, onto the um, trash. The intro is still really creepy to this day i think um yeah it used to scare me as well but i was an idiot child so i used to get scared and keep watching it i used to get books out from the library after that about ufos aliens ghosts any weird stuff i could possibly find used to read that at night and scare myself i was obsessed at that age with (laughs) uh, ufos and stuff but also it was my greatest fear genuine maybe to this day my greatest fear is to be abducted by aliens yeah part of me thinks it'd be right but I don't know. I'm not, not going to encourage it, put it that way. It depends what you're into, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, true. <laughs> it depends uh, what the aliens want. Yeah, if it's one of like. We're not going to kink shame anybody if they yeah. want to be uh, abducted by aliens, <laughs> then. Probed, sent back to Earth. Because um, if they were just there to, to, like, hey, I just want to talk to you, learn more about you, we'll take you to the alien, like, zoo or whatever we'll put you in like an ideal human habitat and whatever or we'll do all sorts of stimuli in your brain to see how you react to like just living the good life whatever that's Mm. great but kerp dissected all of that stuff anally probed up back on earth i guess at least i'd make it back to earth that's my biggest fear being taken away by aliens and never making it back yeah if it was like a star lord situation yeah i mean in in the x-files it's very much not a good thing to be abducted uh, by aliens, <laughs> but um, I'm loving it. I, I feel like a bit of a sellout now uh, as an adult because as a kid, it was always the well, not as a kid, probably I was like 12, 13, probably when I first started watching X Files. But it was always the episodes with the one off ones about weird monsters or vampires, or like they just the have one episode, the and nev- yeah, yeah, and they'd never come back. But now, because it's the early episodes, I'm enjoying the conspiracy stuff a lot more. Uh, but just in that general, does make you a sellout. Well, the thing that does make me a sellout is because I've also over lockdown been watching all the old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries are on um, um, Amazon Prime. And it very much starts off as like a crime show. You know, like, can you help us find... uh, That's not the one with Riker from Star Trek. No, but that's also now been added to Prime recently. Um, (gasps) Oh, really? But um, (laughs) this is with Robert Stack. They make fun of it. in um, He's he's got a cameo in um, Basketball when they're looking for the guy going missing. But... All the early ones is pretty much all just about crime and like, can you help find this criminal who, you know, conned an old woman out of her money or this murderer and stuff like that. And then slowly over the seasons, more and more like this woman claims she can talk to horses and solve their problems <laughs> and stuff like that. And I feel like a sellout because I now found myself fast forwarding through any of the paranormal ones to get to the next like crime, like real life crime bit instead. Uh, Whereas so as a kid, I'd be okay. all about like the yeah, there's definitely would, a poltergeist in that person's house. Would you say it's because either one, you're are you getting your um, 
paranormal fiction X Files, or is it maybe that just you know 2021 Nelms is just over the paranormal? He's over the supernatural. <laughs> he's over the paranormal. I'm not. I'm, I, I'm not over. I, you know, I want to believe, uh, but I think <laughs> just there you go. I just find the crime bits more fascinating. I think, and also watching X Files now, I feel like it's kind of irresponsible. Like I. I feel like conspiracies used to be quite fun to talk about and quite fun to conjecture on to some level. And then in the last five, six years, I just, it's just irresponsible and a bit awful now at what conspiracies have sort of become. I think yeah, to some degree, yeah. obviously there's always an element that's bad about conspiracy theories, depending on what, what the theory is about. But I feel like all the QAnon stuff now, uh, Yes, I kind of don't enjoy even reading or looking into conspiracy theories anymore because I always used to because it's always quite fun to see what rabbit hole and connections people will make on the internet about you know like the like the um, Paul McCartney being replaced by a lookalike after he died in a yeah. car, car crash all that sort of ones but now it's none of that now it's all just miserable like we were joking earlier but it's all literally about how you know Hillary Clinton is kidnapping armies of children and selling them and stuff <laughs> I, th- I and think e- part of it them. as well is that everything now is so it's targeted with an agenda, right? Like like a, a serious, serious like political motivator for a lot of people, which is mentally yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Whereas if you look back at, I mean, if, like flat earth, let's say the earth is flat. Like who the fuck cares? Fine. That's my, well, that's my main problem with that conspiracy theory, but I don't bother looking into it because what's the purpose of lying about the earth being round or flat? Uh, yeah. I've never had a conclusive exactly. answer to why this would need to be lied about. It doesn't those, change those anything are the fun in our world, ones, right? Those yeah. are all the fun ones. Like, all the silly ones are really fun, okay. you know, alien abductions and stuff. Um, but also, the other thing that watching X Files reminded me of was, um, do you remember that program behind? It was like behind the Masked Magician or the Masked Magician. Yes, yeah, like magic. Yes. So I didn't really when I, I remember first watching an episode of it. I think I came in halfway through because it used to be on like ITV on a Saturday afternoon when they'd have nothing to show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Between, like, the football and... <laughs> I hadn't clocked that the guy who plays Skinner, Mitch Pileggi, was the narrator of the show. So I'm just watching this, and the guy's doing, like, ah. you know, magic, and, like, I think it was, like, a ca- the catching bullet trick or whatever. And it's only just cuts to, like, a dark car park, and Mitch <laughs> Pileggi comes out of the shadows in, like... <laughs> I might remember it slightly wrong, but it's definitely like a nighttime. No, like a yeah, car it's like that, yeah. It was and he comes really, out in a really leather jacket, lit. and he just looks straight at the camera, and he goes... You know, over the years, I've heard a lot of theories about who a masked magician might be. I'm here to tell you, none of you are even close. <laughs> really serious, completely, not even a wink. And he just cuts back to the magic. But I was I convinced it was him. Well, I, I thought he was a masked magician. It was I had to talk, he was narrating, cool so I was just like, shit, Mitch Pelleggi is really serious about magic. <laughs> but, he, <laughs> but he came out of nowhere to do this cameo to scare people off. <laughs> and when I went back and watched... You can watch this on YouTube because I found it the other day. I watched the intro to the first episode of that behind the Magician's Mask, or whatever it's called, or um, Breaking the Magician's Code. And it's it, the opening shot is Mitch Pileggi stood outside a warehouse, and the way he's talking about it behind him, you'd think he's in Area 51. <laughs> and he's talking about how like he gives the air that the, the feds could raid them at any minute and and shut down the production of the TV show. It's absolutely incredible. He's like, and then he he justifies it by being like, who knows? Maybe if we show these. Uh, magicians how they do their magic um it'll force them to come up with better and bigger ideas instead but he he doesn't he doesn't it's for most he's more serious in this than he is in the x-files when he's playing their hard-ass boss he's complete you have to watch it it's incredible 
Uh, it, it was really I don't because I guess the whole point is that they're trying to make the magic seem as big a mystery and as exciting as the X Files, right? They were cashing yeah. on the success. I mean, of the it was X-Files. on Fox, I think, so that's probably how they got him to yeah. to do I, it. I was always mm. convinced that he was also the mass magician. I thought but that would be the ultimate reveal. Of it. it was yes, I, I'm a triple threat. I'm an actor. I'm amazing. a the magician. It just cuts to Mulder, like absolutely dumbfounded that his boss <laughs> has been lying to him for all these years. Um, let's take a quick break and then yeah. we'll be back with some Faith No More chat. All right, cool. Hey, welcome back to Slowly We Rock, uh, where we are discussing Faith No More's Angel Dust. That's yeah. right, we have... Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, for those not in the know, Angel Dust is the fourth record by um, the San Francisco band Faith No More, released on the 8th of June, 1992. Uh, it's a follow-up to The Real Thing, their huge breakout album featuring the hit single Epic, and was the final album to feature the guitarist Jim Martin. Kind of looked like a sort of more like a hip indie records version of Slash. Um, it was also the first album where their vocalist Mike Patton, who had joined on The Real Thing, had more of an influence on the songwriting than the band. <laughs> kind of resulted in a bit of a change of direction which left which resulted in Jim Martin leaving the band down the line um this album kind of moves them away from their funk metal sound of their previous records to a more I don't really know what to call it <laughs> it's uh, a very it's, confusing f- unique sound a smorgasbord yeah. of sound yeah yes. the smorgasbord sound the, it's made move them towards the Faith No More sound uh, apparently uh, it's their best selling album to date selling two and a half million copies worldwide. Although in America, it, upon release, it was considered a bit of a flop compared to the real thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, just for a bit of context, uh, Faith No More kind of broke out in the late 80s, along with like a lot of what would become the alternative rock scene of the early 90s. Bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails, Jane's Addiction, all started to have some really you know bigger hits breaking out in the late 90s as a lot of hair metal was kind of sort of peaking, coming to an end. Uh, Faith No More were one of these bands and had a huge hit of the song Epic. Um, I think everyone knows Epic, right? It's 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 a brilliant song. If you've been to a rock night, you've heard Epic. Yeah, if you ever turned on Kerrang, you, you've heard Epic. It's uh-huh. on every compilation. Um, it's, and, it's for, that's, and for good reason. It's, and for good reason, yeah. It's a perfect track. Yep. Ooh. And it is that kind of funk rock metal sound, which it's not exactly like it, but it's also not a million miles away, probably from Jane's Addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers, like what they were doing at the time. Not a yep. million miles away. Um, that was a big breakout for them. Uh, they started to get a lot of uh, great tours and stuff like that, support slots and everything, um, making waves over in Europe as well, rather than just being like that kind of sort of local kind of hit band. If you look for any picture of Metallica back in the mid to late 80s you'll always see James Hetfield wearing a Faith No More t-shirt just kind of bigging up the local heroes mm. um, and I think yeah you, you can't talk about Angel Dust and why it is what it is without talking about the real thing yeah um, absolutely and I, th- I think it's interesting what you say as well that yeah it, it, there's some loose similarities between them and the likes of Red Hot Chili Peppers but I think it's purely the fact that there is a funk element to a heavier sound, completely. Um, yeah, because the rest, the rest of that. I mean, fuck, epic. The whole, the whole guitar, like section. <laughs> the, mm. the reason that track is called epic just doesn't sound like 
anyone else, right? Mm. Um, and that album, it's it's really focused. I think almost every track on it could be a single. A lot of them were. It's very polished. It's just real straight to the point. Uh, it's Hook City. It's full of choruses. It's just it's just a great, really accessible record, right? Like you say, at the end of the kind of hair metal phase, it's this very, very fresh and exciting new thing that had massive commercial success. I mean, it was like Epic was, was it the the most played video on MTV at some point? It may very well have been. I think yeah. so, yeah. It, it, was a, it was a huge hit and I think it definitely set them up for maybe becoming, you know, one of the next big things in, in rock and metal as everything was kind of finding its feet as people got burnt out on on the hair metal sort of genre. But they, they on the album, there's definitely like an eclectic element to it, right? Yeah. They have that cover of War Pigs, which now has become a bit of a classic in its own right. It's mm-hmm. considered to be a fantastic cover. But at the time, it was done in a slightly sadonic way because Ozzy and Sabbath themselves, you know, as artists, were completely fumbling and dropping the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of humour in it, which you know typically there wasn't like a lot of humour in metal. It's not it's not a parody or anything like that on the record or in general. But there is like a kind of sense of humour to it. There's a sense of fun, uh, like Lewis described. And yeah, off the back of that, it felt like maybe I think a lot of people expected Faith No More to be like a really big breakout band, and like a lot of alternative rock bands did after they had their big hit, they went and kind of recorded something which had. <laughs> very deliberate <laughs> lack of commercial appeal, kind of like the validity of like In Utero and stuff. And that's kind of where we find ourselves with Angel Dust in 92, like three years later. Um, Lewis, how do you describe the sound on Angel We saw that we go, it's hard to kind of put a finger on it, but what would you say is the major difference between the real thing and um, an Angel Dust? Because I got a copy of Angel Dust on vinyl for Christmas, and my cool. stepdad said to me, Oh, Faith No More, yeah, that, what was their big hit? I was like, Epic. And I was like, Oh, cool, yeah, is that is that on that record? I'm like, No, no, no. I'm like, This record doesn't really sound like that. It's like, Oh, it's kind of weird because Faith No More are an incredibly influential band, but generally they're kind of seen as a, not say a one hit wonder, but they are most known for that one song, right? And it's funny because that just doesn't really represent what they're about and it definitely doesn't represent what's going on on Angel Dust. Did you say, no, no, this is the one with Jizzlobber on it? Or... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I think for... Yeah, I don't think that anyone should consider them as a one-hit wonder because um, they... I mean, they're, they're revered, right? Mm. Faith No More I spoke about in the same sentence as the biggest bands of all time. Like, they are so influential, so, so influential. And a lot of that is because of Angel Dust. It's the the least, <laughs> the least commercially viable, accessible, and somehow successful record to a number one hit that you could possibly make. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is, in a way, it is like the... It's the anti-Black Album, right? Like, imagine him mm. following up Justice for All with the Black Album going, this was a very smart career move. And then actually, <laughs> yeah. but instead of doing the, do the opposite thing, going, okay, here's a Black Album, now here's Unjustice for All. Like, it is a, yeah. it's like, it's trying to, it, it, well, much like Nirvana, Nevermind and Utero, it's something which is trying to alienate its fans, but in a different way, because I think even with, like, in 
terror. Like you can still hear bits of Nirvana record. It's very, yeah, very um, sort of gritty and uh, lo-fi one, but it's still Nirvana. You could play a couple, you could play a song off Angel with someone who'd listened to a real thing, and you wouldn't even know they were the same band. No, no. And I think the the biggest part of that uh, is probably the the elephant in the room, right? Mike Patton. Uh, if you don't know Mike Patton, in my opinion, probably the single greatest artist of all time. Just a man who's, ta- like, <laughs> shit, his talent knows no bounds, right? And neither does his yeah. imagination. And that's such an amazing one-two combo for <laughs> someone to have. He's incredible. Um, and when he came into, so you, you kind of you kind of need to understand Mike Patton first, right? So let's let's just take this back slightly. So when he was growing up as a child and a small child, uh, he would constantly drink a lot of coffee, and all he would do is watch Looney Tunes, and he'd really enjoy recreating all of the sound effects and all of the noises. Just as a small child, amped up on coffee. <laughs> so, you, so you flash forward. He's he gets uh, he lived in Eureka and was performing in Mr. Bungle which is a super fucking strange avant-garde thrash funk everything combo. Um, And he was just born with, he was born with an ego or an attitude that he was destined to fulfill, I think. Um, Because even when, um, when Faith and Amore approached him, they were, they had some good success with Chuck Mosley and they had the whole of the real thing written out. All the music was done. And I think he was working at like a record shop or something. And they basically came like, hi, we're Faith No More. We've, we've heard you. You should definitely come and sing for us. And he was That's like, wild. yeah, all right. What? And he was like, whatever. <laughs> he was like, oh, no, I, I don't need that. And they're like, you, I mean, you're working at a record store. You can just come and do music full time if you do this. So he did it. And he was somewhat kind of begrudging about it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. He's just a man that seems so like anti celebrity and anti-success it's really strange like it's amazing he's just like an artist through and through right when you think about someone that only cares about their art they don't care about any of the success it has or anything it's purely focused on their art so he comes in um he spends two weeks writing and recording all of the vocals on the real thing which is fucking crazy (laughs) it's just like a hit factory and then uh, because he didn't want, he wasn't sure how committed he was to it. He put on this voice for the whole album. So he sang like really nasally and he wanted to kind of distance himself from what his love was, which was Mr. Bungle, where he used his real voice. Mm. Um, perfect, perfect. Decision. The, um, Matt Wallace, the producer was really like, he's like, please, like, can you just sing like you were singing <laughs> when we weren't <laughs> recording? <laughs> um, and he said, it's one of those times that, you couldn't have foreseen that making that sound was the perfect choice for the record because it does sound bratty. It sounds really kind of yes, yes, absolutely. in your face, you know, and it's and it's the perfect choice for that. So when he was actually involved with the writing, I think he was so much more connected to it that he opened up and he used he used his whole fucking voice on this record, right? <laughs> so yeah, uh, so Mike Patton comes in, way bigger hand of the writing. And stuff just gets a lot more fucked up as a result, and that and that's where we are with uh, with Angel Dust. Oh, on the Red Hot Chili Peppers comparison, apparently after release of um, the real thing, they developed a bit of a rivalry with Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, who they'd actually played with before on tour. 
but Anthony Kiedis accused Mike Patton of stealing his style <laughs> in the epic video uh, and apparently told Crank Magazine my drummer says he's going to kidnap Patton shave his hair off and cut off one of his feet just so he'll be forced to find his own style you cool. say cool, cool, you cool, say cool. a bit of a rivalry Mike Patton fucking hates Anthony Kiedis <laughs> 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 he did um, he did a show with Mr Bungle uh, it was like a Halloween show where they came on stage and introduced themselves as the Red Hot Chili Peppers and then did like spoof kind of Chili Peppers style songs all whilst he was pretending to inject himself with heroin. <laughs> wow. So Mike Mike Patton as well is like notoriously anti-drug. Uh, he doesn't... The only, the only thing that he puts in his body is caffeine. Uh, like if you're talking about any kind of substance... You know, he doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs, just chugs coffee, <laughs> which is also like the worst thing for your vocals. <laughs> like... Terrible. <laughs> coffee, milk, cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what? I mean, how how did how was your guys' kind of first reaction to coming between those two? I mean, the record label when they heard um, they came in whilst they were recording uh, mal- malpractice. I love that song. Uh, <laughs> So good. And they said to um, the band that the exec sat down and listened to it. And then apparently there was a moment of silence. And he looked up and said, I hope none of you have bought houses. <laughs> I get it. I mean, I love malpractice, but imagine if you're that executive, you would assume the rest of the album would sound like that song. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's Mid- a weird thing, but you can, can easily be on um, the real thing. I yes. Think. I was going to say, apart from. There's only a couple of tracks in there you could take that one song on its own and say, this is in- indicative of what the album sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, but Malpractice in particular, I, w- I would say that and Jizz Lobber. Uh, <laughs> I, this, isn't, this isn't a negative thing, but it's going to sound it. I find them exhausting to listen to. Um, they're quite punishing tracks, those two in particular, yes. to classic. listen to. So I can only imagine, I, I think I'd be horrified if I'd put money behind a band recording an album. <laughs> um, <laughs> And especially if you think they've, if, if anything you've heard is, uh, you know, epic or the real thing, um, and then suddenly you're going, oh yeah, here's our new sound, and it's just uh, malpractice blaring out at full volume. That would be horrifying. <laughs> I think when I first discovered Faith No More, I must, I saw the music video for Epic. Uh, yeah. Got played a lot and thought it was a fantastic song. Um, I then ended up hearing straight out of nowhere on a compilation record I got for Christmas, like a random rock compilation. It was the opening song on the uh, compilation. I absolutely loved it. So I ended up picking up the record, like completely into it. Just thought it was a great clearly, album. Clearly the same band as well, right? Yes, clearly the same band, yeah. Like, loved the mix of, like, the, the instrumentation, uh, mm-hmm. patterns, like, yeah, bratty vocals. The, the synth they used in it as well is a big differentiate between again a lot of like the the kind of alternative rock bands that were coming out at the time but then angel dust was a record i kept hearing about and the reason why i discovered angel dust uh, as an album was way 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 back when kerrang magazine did a top 50 most influential albums mm-hmm. as music stands you know as of i think it must have been maybe 2004 or whatever maybe a little bit earlier than that and number one was Faith No More's Angel Dust and I was yeah. shocked I was like 
how's it not Nevermind? How's it not Master of Puppets? How's it not all these other albums like Number of the Beast? How's it not Rage Against the Machine? Sure. What do you mean Angel Dust? It's not even got the hit on it. I don't even know this record. <laughs> <laughs> so I was compelled to go check it out. And it was just an absolutely bizarre experience because it just <laughs> goes through so many peaks and troughs. And the thing about actually talking about Mike Patton's addiction to caffeine there's even a song on there called Caffeine, is the album sounds like the product of staying awake for seven days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, there's, there's a weird, almost like, with the synth as well, slightly like paranoid feel to the record. It's like just a kind of oppressive layer on it. Um, yeah. It's not like, say, the real thing, where the synth can be quite fun. Uh, and as to like the pop elements, it kind of does the opposite in a lot of places. Um, it just feels slightly off-key and strange. Yeah, off-kilter, isn't it? Off-kilter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would be all these weird directions, so you'd get, like, uh, a quite a catchy song, like um, Midlife Crisis, yeah. you know, the first single, but then you'd get RV, where it's like a weird country jam where he's kind of doing that Tom Waits talking, drawing <laughs> kind of thing. It's all about like sat alone in his RV or his trailer, getting ready to beat his kids or something. And then you would get, <laughs> then you'd get another song like um, "Everything's Ruined," something like that, like another single. But then you'd get "Malpractice," <laughs> which is a song about a woman. The lyrically is a song about a woman who gets addicted to having surgery because she loves the feel of a human hand inside yeah. of her body. Yeah. Um, and then you get, then you get, then you get like "Crack Hitler," where you get like the seventies funk. Best song on the album. soundtrack, but then it goes into Jizzlobber, which is like the dark, one of the darkest songs I've ever heard. <laughs> That's I the first song I heard on this I album. Would just, I would just feel That's uncomfortable the... listening to it at the end, but then it would go into a cover of Midnight Cowboy, and then into a cover of Easy. And a straight cover I, of Easy. But don't yeah, mess around with it. Yeah, a fantastic cover no... of Easy. Yeah. yeah it's just and a straight up, I, it's a lovely song. And so I didn't know what I was listening to, but I was always compelled to go back to it again yeah. and again. Yep. Now, did you? Sorry, did you just say that Chislobber was the first song you heard from this album? Yeah, because it was um, <laughs> on either LimeWire or Kazaa. Uh, I would just download songs from. You were, yeah. you were looking for music at the time. Hey. <laughs> um, or maybe Audio Galaxy, or somebody might have sent it to me over MSN Messenger. That was really the only way to get music. That was back then. If someone sang me a song over Amazon Messenger called Jizzlobber, I would probably report them to the police. <laughs> yeah, but it's all one word, so I don't know. But anyway, uh, but I, I probably, but probably once I started playing it, I probably forgot or didn't really clock what the title actually was because it's such a weird, mm. abrasive yeah. song. It, it's almost like, obviously now you say Jizzlobber out loud or whatever, it's obvious. But looking at it, in, I don't know, it's not necessarily would have clocked with me that's what the title was, if that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. nonsense in the same way that Limp Biscuit is nonsense. Yes, exactly. And then you hear a song and it's absolutely punishing. But I did stick with it because I'd heard it was a really good album. And then I ended up actually getting the CD of it. We went on this ridiculous trip to, when I was in college, so like 16, 17, we went on a two-day trip to London to go to a load of theatres because I, I was doing drama at um, college. Um but we had so much free time without any teachers there, just letting us go around London and do what we wanted. It was it was an incredible weekend, but 
I can't really talk about a lot of it. And it was absolute chaos. Um, but <laughs> like any normal person who's on a trip away, I went into HMV and bought a CD. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I've been looking for Angel Death for a while and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I found it in that HMV. And I remember me and my mate sharing headphones, listening to it all the way back from London to uh, uh, Sirencester. Um, it's just an incredible album. Um, but I have really fond memories of it just from that trip to London. Um, but it's really hard to put into words like, Wikipedia calls it theatrical, like the sound of the, the album, which yeah. I can kind of see. But even like the opening track, which isn't particularly, compared to the rest of the album, isn't particularly weird, almost sounds like it's coming in halfway through a song. And it doesn't feel like it should be the opening track of an album. It There's no real build-up to it. It's almost like just immediately straight into the song, isn't it? There's no, I do you know what I mean? I, it just immediately yeah. starts. I think, I may, I may be slightly biased because that's my favourite Maybe my one of my favourite songs. Oh, I love the song. That wasn't a criticism of the song, but it's but not I, a normal I, album opener, is what I mean. It's not a normal album opener. No, completely but also agree. it kind I of think it's, it's a warning shot, isn't it? I think it feels like <laughs> the perfect way to open this album. Yes, because it wouldn't change it anything. Could, it could not be more different to everything that came before it, and it's such a fucking statement, right? So yeah, this is the Land of Sunshine. Land of one. Sunshine. He does everything with his voice on this. So oh, the interesting thing about that as well is basically the lyrics is Mike Patton asking you how you're feeling before you go on this weird journey. But do you know, do you know why it feels, because I would say everything, it's not spite. What's the word that I'm thinking of? Like we've said, it's like, it's punishing to listen to. It's almost like a kind of, I don't know, like a, a morbid curiosity. It is rewarding as well, we should say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's challenging. It's a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, the Sun the... album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but there's, there's, like, there's an attitude behind it. It's, it's antagonistic, right? Everything's very sarcastic. Yes. Yeah, and antagonistic. Very antagonistic. Yes. Yep. And I think, Jim, when you were saying there that um, this album sounds like it was written on Not A Lot Of Sleep... Do you know that the first two tracks on this album, Mike Patton went through sleep, uh, sleep deprivation experiments on himself just yes, to write lyrics? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Because I spent a lot of time when I was younger <laughs> yeah. reading about this album, trying to work out how they put it together. And that was one of the things that was always cited that he was going without sleep while he, while he wrote it. There was lots of, lots of crazy stuff about Mike Patton as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that was one of the team of things. But yeah, it was interesting. But that... It, 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 it perfectly captures the feeling of like insomnia, not quite knowing where you are or what's going on. Well, he always shifts his voice on this one. So he'll suddenly go from singing to just basically speaking and like, here's how to order. So the, and then goes back into the song. It's, so it has everything on it. It does have that Looney Tunes cartoon element to it, yeah. right? Yeah, Lots absolutely. of different crazy characters talking at you. Yeah. And he, he got obsessed during his one experiment with um, uh, like, Tele-evangelists? Is it tele- televangelists? Uh, televangelists. Yeah. Televangelists, yeah. Um, so con this men. is all about that. Like, yeah, like con men and shit. And yeah. all of those questions that he asks, like, does emotional music have quite the effect on you, are all Scientology <laughs> tests? It's the personality test questions uh, that they do in the Scientology? Uh, fucking Dianetics. That's or it. Whatever it is, so yeah. it's a mix of that and also fortune cookies. It's like you are an angel heading to the land of sunshine and fortune is smiling upon you. It's just straight ah. from a fortune cookie. And the, the dichotomy of these really invasive, like, charged personal questions and then these kind of really, like, positive, you know, like, almost salesman pitches, right? Like, everything's great. You want to do that. Like, 
it, it, there's just this this juxtaposition across the whole album. It's never like one emotion. There's always something. There's always like a um, like an agenda to it, almost. Mm. You know, it is. It is in that way. Maybe like a perfect uh, album opener because it does such a good job of setting, if not like the stylistic tone, but the kind of thematic tone of the mm. album. Yeah, yeah, that and caffeine. Yes, the second track you can tell completely written. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I'm getting no sleep. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And <laughs> uh, Lewis, do you remember the first time you heard this record? How you discovered it? Yeah, so I, this was in like probably one of the first records that I bought uh, when I was starting to get into kind of classic rock and that, and learning guitar. So it was like you know ACDC, and then discovered Iron Maiden, and then you'd find like a compilation epic would be on it or from out of nowhere. I was like, oh, cool. I really, really like these Faith of the More tracks. There's loads of cool guitar on it. I need to hear more of them. But um, in HMV, I think it was like, you know, you could get those two disc sets that just looked completely almost like unbranded. <laughs> like they, yep. they look bootleg as fuck, but yeah. for some reason it's not. So it was this and the real thing. So I put the real thing on because I knew it. I was like, yeah, this is really cool. It's really fun. Uh, you know, there's so much like energy and great. I love this. And I put the next one on and like, I guess straight up front, it's not a guitar album. Like, not no, I think it's like this album. Is, yeah, I do as well. Synths and bass. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of, there's guitar all over it, but it's not, it's not the it's defining not obvious, feature. Uh, yeah. yeah. Not like, not like the real thing which had, it was big guitar breaks. Um, so I was very confused. And because it was at the start of that kind of journey for me, like it was definitely challenging, but there was something about it that I just couldn't put my finger on, but I, I just kept coming back to it and coming back to it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe when I was in uni, I'd given it a bit of a break and came back to it after kind of experiencing a, a, a lot more music and I was just like, yeah, this is this is maybe the best album that I've ever heard. This is, I yeah, perfect. I felt similar. I do think sometimes that's a sign of a really good piece of art because the amount of times I've seen a film or listened to an album and be like, eh, I don't really know about that, and then I keep thinking about it and mm. I keep thinking about bits of it mm, I like. Absolutely. Like, oh, actually, that's quite good. I mean, you listen to it again or watch it again, whatever it is. I mean, I mean, eventually, like some of my favourite things, I've been quite indifferent to when I first heard it, or not indifferent, but like you say, you don't it's really know. Band, isn't it? Not, yeah. you don't know what yeah. to make of it, and that can sometimes feel negative, even if it's not. And yeah, I, I completely agree. This is it's a really good example of this. What you just said, and I, I felt, I'm sure most people do. I felt the same way when I heard it as well. I was like, mm, <laughs> what, what, what just happened? And it's, um, it's like modern art, right? It's like modern art versus classical art like you can go to an art museum and see something that's technically painted beautifully and you appreciate it because it's a very pretty picture right this is the polar opposite this is some fucking abstract art piece that you're looking at like i have i do not know what to make of this and it sticks in your brain yeah and then the more you kind of start to look at it and you start to engage you kind of put your own thoughts into what it might be and it uh, it's very like weirdly self-affirming and it's fucking strange yeah yeah that's a really good point the, the kind of lesson is that ambivalence isn't necessarily a bad thing you know mm. it's, you can be confused and have a lot of mixed thoughts on it yeah and you just need it's you just need time to process it yeah absolutely and i, and I think um you know especially i think in a, this is kind of a good time to find albums when you're younger because when we were younger and we had limited um money to spend on music mm-hmm. 
unlimited access to music when you make that purchase you have to commit to it and yeah. if i discovered <laughs> this album in 2021 and just stuck it on spotify having listened to previous albums maybe i wasn't gelling with it i would probably leave it behind i probably wouldn't be in a rush to go back to it or i'd maybe just listen to yeah a I, couple of the singles again i think you're right i had the same i was thinking about this now i just, I just popped into my head i had the same reaction to this as i did to when i first heard uh lateralis by tool um, okay yeah again that was an album i remember thinking it was rubbish when i first heard it or at least i wasn't rubbish isn't the right word but like i was indifferent to it or like didn't really know what to make of what i just heard just I, liked, I liked the heavy bits on it, but I felt yep. like I had to wait a long time to get to the heavy bits. Yep. And but then I over kept time, listening because I liked them, and then you realise that yep. the actual mellow stuff is where it's at as well. And then mm. over time, like this album we're talking about today, uh, it's completely clicked to where this the, uh, Angel Dust and that album are, are both two of my absolute favourite albums of all time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we'll go through the uh, tracks to try and make our way through. We've already touched on a couple of them. Mm. Um, third track on the album is Midlife Crisis, which was the first single. And this is this does sound like the single. It's a really catchy song. Yep. Uh, it was co- yes. covered by Disturbed, um, which yeah. is interesting. Um, it's actually not <laughs> really? a bad cover at all. Yeah, it's genuinely not a bad cover. I don't cover. think I've ever heard it. I could but, see his voice fitting yeah. the song. Um, but apparently oh, no. uh, this was inspired by Madonna. Yeah, um, and where she was in the early '90s, which is really interesting because Madonna was definitely not in like the middle of her life in like 1991, 92. This would have been peak Madonna, wouldn't it? As a worldwide diva, I think it would have been when she was doing like the David Finch music videos with yeah Vogue, yeah, yeah. stuff, yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> I went um, to look up a lyric to "Midlife Crisis" and just type "Midlife Crisis" in, so now I've got a Google search explaining to me. What a midlife crisis is. <laughs> what is the actual definition of a midlife crisis? I'm glad you yeah. asked. Just to give context to the song, obviously, a midlife crisis is a transition of identity and self-confidence that can occur in middle-aged individuals, typically between forty-five to sixty-five years old. <laughs> so I think, but that perfectly encapsulates that because Madonna was the driving force. Mike Patton said that, like, whatever you know, on music channels, on news, anything that you turned onto, I guess it was the start of like celebrity, right? Mm. Um, you're just completely plastered with news about Madonna and all this invasive shit into her life. And he, these are kind of his thoughts on that. And he's, he said in a recent interview, he's like, well, it turned out I was right. Didn't <laughs> yeah, no, he's nailed it. And I think this, this is definitely like the hookiest, like, like we were saying, like sounds like a single. Yes. But again, the opening singing part does not sound like it's going to be a big hit single at all. He's like growling and whispering like a murderer. Yeah, the start yeah. Of this song. and it's got the word menstruating in the chorus. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's fucking, it's it's the perfect example of what this album's about. And there's there's actually a clip of um, Mike Patton when they got massive off of the back of the real thing. He could not have been more. Uh, what was what was the words that he said? Antagonistic. He couldn't have been more antagonistic at every possibility. So he's doing like they were hosting like the Grammys or something, and they're interviewing him or like MTV Awards. And, like we're here with Mike Patton, and he's so fucking sarcastic about it. He's like, "Oh my god, oh my god, I'm here at the the MTV Awards." He's like, <laughs> "This reporter very serious, like, so Mike, are you looking forward to Madonna?" <laughs> and he's like, "Oh my god, Madonna's here! Oh my god!" <laughs> it's like just so shitty. <laughs> I would hate to have to interview him. 
for anything. Yeah. I just I feel deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> there's yeah, a um... it, there's always there's always a feeling with their music that they are having a joke and it might be on you as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is very much like the you know like the underdogs in a lot of films or like nerds or outsiders or all these kind of stereotypes, right? In a lot of films are just portrayed to be these kind of like weak, like, oh, I'm going to accept that everyone hates me or that I'm different and I'm just going to deal with it. Whereas actually in reality, those people will be very sarcastic about like the popular kids and all of that. And this is that sound encapsulated in an album. That is Faith No More. Yeah. yeah. Um, it reminds a little bit of, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy who was in <laughs> tenuous, but the guy, the kid who was in Stranger Things, who was also in It Chapter One, uh, with the glasses, who is constantly yeah. like cracking jokes, uh, yeah. but he's also a very dorky kind of dude. It's that kind of energy to it. Yeah, it's you don't realise that actually the nerds hate the popular kids, <laughs> and not <laughs> not because they're jealous of them, because they just fundamentally don't like what they represent. You know? Yeah, it's just they're just on different wavelengths completely. Yeah. Mm. Um, the funny thing is Faith and More though are a band who you know critics love them and other musicians love them as well and see Mike Patton was asked to sing for In Excess at one point right I think we've told the story on the podcast <laughs> yeah, but, yeah um, I think we have <laughs> he was asked he was asked to replace uh, the front man of In Excess who had died uh, by accidental asphyxiation uh, after he was Basically, it found his hotel. I think he was trying to have an asphyxia wank, for lack of a better term, right? Autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> and they were on the hunt for a new singer for a while. And at one point, they approached Mike Patton and asked him if he wanted to sing. He said he'd only do it if he could basically. <laughs> uh, I don't think he wanted to tie this to a noose around it. He just wanted to tie something around his neck and yank on it <laughs> when he was yep. on stage, right? Yep. Yeah. What an unreasonable response that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's not even particularly funny. It's just him being a dickhead in that particular uh, instance. But there's like so much of their career is that is just like doing the absolute opposite that should make someone like it's yeah. like how to lose friends and alienate people, but <laughs> successfully. It's crazy. They, they they didn't play the game, and yet in the long term they kind of won because they broke up, came back, put out a big comeback album and headlined festivals and now Incredible they can come back now they can come back whenever they want and do these huge shows <laughs> it, you know they, they've done the art now they can kind of make the money um, well, they just they don't care they they do not give a shit about any outside influence at all and that's why i say it's like it's artistry and it's purest <laughs> <laughs> that's the odd line up <laughs> Like it's that's why I think this album is just the purest form of artistry because there couldn't have been more pressure to push it one way or the other, and they just they didn't care. If this album was a massive flop, they wouldn't have given a shit. It's because it's like it's one, to do that, isn't it? Yeah, it's someone else's money you're playing with for a start. I mean, you play for malpractice. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel uh, on King for a Day, Fall for a Lifetime. They tried to make an even more eclectic and alienating album in a different mm. way. Yeah, mm. so it, I think it's only, but I think the most recent album, Soul Invictus, is maybe the first time Faith No More have made the type of album which maybe people wanted them to make. I think it feels like the natural successor to this one. Yeah, mm. it's quite, th- it's stripped back, I would say, Soul, Soul Invictus, yeah. but it's just as uncompromising I listened to it today actually after this album it's just as uncompromising I think maybe yeah. we're a bit more 
tuned in to Faith No More at this point. Yeah, we, we've, we've had, <laughs> we've had, we've had um, 30 years of bands it, sort of ripping them off and being influenced by them. But if you went in blind and this is your first Faith No More album you heard, it would melt your face off, I think. You it, yeah, you wouldn't know where to put your thing. Where to, it, to yeah, it. it's fantastic, that album. So, uh, yeah, we've got Midlife Crisis, which was like the first single from it. Like, I guess kind of a moderate hit. It definitely wasn't a hit in the same way that Epic was. No, no. <laughs> um, which is funny because again, this album's coming out at like the peak of alternative rock. You know? You've got like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails, Alice in Chains, Jane's Addiction, Smashing Pumpkins, like Red Hot Chili Peppers. All of these bands are making absolute waves, and you'd think now would be the time that Faith No More would sort of get their moment in the sun. Mm. And um, they, I guess, they, I guess they didn't want it essentially. Um, but yeah, absolutely fantastic song. Uh, we follow this up with RV, which again, <laughs> just when you think you know what's going on in the record, you get a catchy single, and you get this very strange spoken Cold. word kind of country song with Mike Patton describing like how much he's like his belly's itching, <laughs> how he's sick of like just wants to watch TV. It's really strange stuff, right? It's so strange. It's so, it's it's almost like a kind of. It's got like a waltzy quality to it, right? It's got that, mm. that waltz swing and it's all very like floaty and dreamy. And then the things that he's saying are just incredibly depressing. <laughs> Have you got any of the lyrics to hand? Uh, uh, yeah. I've got them in front of me. Well, it starts off with him saying, uh, backside melts into a sofa. My world, my TV, my food. Beside me, listen to my belly gurgle, ain't much else to do. Blah, blah, blah. He says that he married a scarecrow. Uh, <laughs> Visa, it's such a weird song uh, I'm a swinging guy throw a belt over well I'm a swinging guy throw a belt over the shower curtain rod and swing toss me inside a hefty and put me in the ground <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's Jeez. so dark and it's such a like a lovely dreamy floaty sound that you said that's what I mean like every single thing where, where in this album kids? where are the kids maybe pregnant or on drugs or on welfare <laughs> on top of the world Wow. I don't think I've ever read... I mean, I kind of know the lyrics just through listening to it over and over again, but I never really took the time to actually read them. That's pretty... Uh, it's pretty dark stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds Wait, and it, th- to be fair, in the song. I think it also... So, I've got a bit of a theory about this album, gents. I think that it perfectly encapsulates the kind of underbelly of, like, the fringes of American life during that period of time. Because if you think each thing, like you've got it's the first song about like Scientology and these weird fucking culty religions that are sold to you. Um, midlife crisis, obsession with like the celebrity. RV talking about just like the depression of this kind of like, living in a trailer and like your kids are on drugs and all, what you just said there, Dan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you're right. It ends on, a, it ends on the theme tune to Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. Um, which again, uh, famously was the, first x-rated film i think to get an oscar nomination but also again covers a very dark seedy part of american life uh, about yeah. a male prostitute and a hustler um yeah i think you might have absolutely nailed it actually still it is a good album as well <laughs> <laughs> no because but i think in the wrong hands covering those topics could be quite a like actively miserable listening experience yes um and like i said a couple of the songs are quite exhausting to listen to but i think again deliberately Mm-hmm. Um, but at no point w- would I say that it, it was a depressing album. 
despite the content of it. It's so catchy and bouncy at times. Mm. There's, there's a lot of anxiety on it because it's jump ahead a little bit, but you get to like kindergarten, and that's just a song about being afraid of kind of growing up and having to, and just there yeah, looking back, not even looking back because it's, it's all in, in real time, but it's just a kid explaining, you know, what it's like to be at kindergarten. It feels like it's quite literal, right? It, it, so that's, that's about um, a kid that's constantly held back. I think to the point that he's an adult stuck in <laughs> kindergarten. Of yeah, of course it's dark. Because <laughs> it, it. <laughs> it, it says, like, I can't fit in the swings anymore. <laughs> it's like, it's oh, super literal. Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, poor kid. Swings don't even fit me anymore. No one's supposed to believe in the next grades. Folklore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that song. I think it's that it's that sense of humour that allows them to touch on these things, right? Yes. It because it, it's it's not like I don't know. It, like you said um, when we were talking about pop punk versus uh, new metal, it's not punching down on it's punching down on Madonna, but it's on on the other things. It's just very much like um, like a Charles Bukowski novel or something. It's just like here here is what life is. So yeah, the humour reminds me a bit of South Park, and that it just has that sort of irreverent disdain for everything. Um, mm-hmm. Everything's terrible, yes. let's make Everything's, fun of it. Yeah, let's make fun of it. Yeah, nothing is off guard. Um, which, yeah, definitely comes across. But there is something also kind of a little bit abstract. Like, I, you could take the lyrics quite literally in some places, or you could just not read into them. Like, it, it never occurred to me that kindergarten, or I never quite cared that kindergarten was about someone who'd been held back for years and years and years. Um, we talked about the watermelons being shorter than they used to be. Yeah, which actually is... Um, pre- I, mean, I thought maybe it was like a gross bit, but yeah, it's like absolutely nightmarish, the idea of being like a grown man in a kindergarten class and not being intelligent enough to move on. Billy Madison, isn't it? Or Yeah. there's a lot of songs on this record but they're all we could talk forever and ever about all the songs because there's just so many good ones Um, but I will we mentioned Malpractice earlier and how the record label came in that one is like a straight up heavy metal song and like not even heavy metal but it's like it's a bit industrial yeah it's it's also it's like a little bit industrial in places as well it reminds me a lot of like uh, where bands like Between the Buried and Me would go in some of their heavier moments yeah yeah, I heard it described as um, art house death metal. Yes, perfect. Yep. Yep. Same with Jizzlobber as well. Yes, art house death yep. metal. And that fucking scream he does, which is full on into like whistle register, like Mariah Carey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm just thankful those two songs aren't back to back. They give you a bit of yeah. a break before you. Um, have yeah, to listen like, to another one. <laughs> it's halfway through the album, it's the centerpiece. Do you think this album flows well? I do. I, 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 almost, I, I, I think it does because I've listened to it so much and I know what's coming, but I almost wonder where they've deliberately, the way they put the tracks, it doesn't feel like a natural progression to I, me. I, I think it does. Which I think adds because, to it. Because it's an, the, yeah. the album's an hour long, but it's never felt like an hour long. And no, 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 just in terms of the, the order of the tracks, not the, um, the actual content. Oh, see, I, I think the order of tracks is good because 
you have things like Land of Sunshine and Midlife Crisis early on, that about halfway through you get everything's ruined and malpractice. But then as you get to like the kind of back half, again, you've got like Be Aggressive and Small Victory. So you've got like mm. really catchy songs. I mean, you've got Crack Killer, which is the funkiest song exactly. in the whole then, you get, then, then it gets weird again with like, yeah, with Jizzlobber. But then you've also got Midnight Cowboy and... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've just talked about a song called Crack Hitler and then you've gone yeah but then after that it gets weird again <laughs> <laughs> but, but then you get easy again so I, I think the album has a really good ebb and flow of like more melodic yeah, I, accessible I, I, I songs with just the weird stuff um, but yeah uh, Be Aggressive is a fun one because it was one of the few songs which uh, Mike Patton didn't write the lyrics for they're written by um, Roddy Bottom, um, who was their keyboard player, who I think at the time wasn't uh, out of the closet and uh, came out. I think it was known within the band, but it wasn't sort of generally known to the public. And he came out like a, a year or two later, but kind of as like a piss take, he just wrote a song about giving blowjobs. Because mm, yeah. he thought it'd be absolutely hilarious for Mike Patton to be up on stage at like these metal festivals and tours, uh, just singing about like how good he was and how it sucking dicks. <laughs> but then yeah. Mike Patton, being like an absolute trooper, gives it one hundred percent and doesn't shy away from it. Absolutely. Well, apparently, apparently he was super excited about that, and it's because it's it's a it's a challenging topic for like what ninety two. Absolutely. Like mainstream (laughs) number one commercial band. When when you think of like prominent uh, gay artists in heavy metal, like even we've mentioned before, Rob Halford hadn't even come out at that point. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I I also like the lyrics aren't even thinly veiled. If you just look at the lyrics, they're very clear. Well, maybe I didn't come to it like kindergartens. (laughs) Maybe it's one of those things where all the lyrics are actually incredibly clear, but it's very easy to have them go over your head. There's Um, so much going on in every song, I think, other than the singing. I starred this. It's all for me. What's yours is mine and mine is mine. That's plain to see. So give it up. I've got to have it. I swallow, I swallow, I swallow, I swallow. (laughs) Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. Because I think everyone at this point now has kind of ripped off. In fact... Most, most recently, Bring Me in the Horizon ripped off yeah. the uh, the cheerleader chant from this song. It was also ripped off by um, Marilyn Manson, but I won't go into that. But um, yeah. it was... Um, it's so good on this song. But yeah, it was ripped off recently by... Uh, I say recently, in the last like 10 years, so by Bring Me in the Horizon. And when I heard that, I was... I actually quite like that song. I like Happy Song by Bring Me in the Horizon, but I was so annoyed <laughs> that they ripped it off because <laughs> I was like, no, no, Faith No More did it first. Everyone needs and to go back 30 years and check out this it, album instead. It's such a, yeah, another great curveball on this album. There's nothing remotely hinting at this sort of, like you said, cheerleader <laughs> chorus, either in the song or leading up, or the album leading up to this point. Um, and again, I think almost every song has some kind of curveball or unusual element, to, to say the least. It, yeah. Aside from the production, even if it's just like my pattern doing a different accent or style of singing, or you know, and you think as well with with this one, the like there is nothing more USA than all American cheerleaders, right? Yep. And you think of the content that they're then singing this in is it, it's just like so at odds with each other that you've just got that really fucking good tension. It's like they're encouraging, like they're, they're a cheer squad for someone giving a blowjob, aren't they? They're like, yeah, yeah, you can do this. Come on. It's a dick sucking contest. Aggressive, <laughs> yeah. aggressive homosexual sex. <laughs> and that's it. It's not even like a, like, it's not even like a, I don't know, some kind of 
just like it's not soft, is it? It's like it's fucking expressive. No, it's, it's in the title. I mean, there's no metaphor. Like, there's no. There's no subtext. It's visceral. It's, it's really visceral. This is about it. tall and reckless, sex, ugly seed. Reach down my throat, you filthy bird. That's all I need. This <laughs> this empty pit. I've got to feed to prove I'm fit. A healthy man. I've got to be. Malnutrition. My submission. You're the master. I take it on my knees. So I've just googled the lyrics and none of those are in that. So what on earth are you talking about, James? <laughs> oh, welcome to uh, Wouldn't that be a good twist? the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> For James's dick sucking poetry. Uh, no, it's a fantastic song. Yes. And again, that cheerleader chorus just just every song is great. I mean, there's some extra element that just takes it over the top to being yep. like fantastic. And then immediately yep. followed by a small victory. Which is I love this song so much. Brilliant song, yeah. This is one of the singles, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think it was, which the, makes uh, sense. I think it was there, yeah. Uh, also, um, <laughs> well, this is interesting. So the video uh, was nominated for an MTV Music Video Award for Best Art Direction, but lost to Madonna's song "Rain" for album Erotica. <laughs> so that's like Madge had the last laugh after all, guys. <laughs> Was it was it this one or which one was their last single? Was it this or Everything's Ruined? So Everything's Ruined was the last single, and it, I don't know if you haven't seen the video, okay. but it's them just basically dancing in front of a uh, a green screen, which is yeah. random yes. images in the background. It turns out that the record label has spent quite a bit of money on the first two videos, but also the album hadn't done as well as they'd expected, so they just refused to spend any money on the third video. Yeah. So then they. They wanted it to look even cheaper than it does. They wanted it to look like in in um, the states, in malls, you can go and do like a, a star experience where you'll like sing and perform in front of a blue screen, and you'll get a DVD with, yeah, I don't know something in the background. Right? They wanted it to basically just be that for this like huge multi-million selling band to just make like the biggest piece of shit looking video they could possibly make just because the record label wouldn't give them money. This is also <laughs> peak MTV, right? Where like every music yeah. video. Is an absolute. The video epic. sells the song. Yeah, and this makes it stand out more, I think, because of that. Because they've gone the complete exactly. opposite style of the time. They've. Uh, it's a very memorable video because of how cheap it looks. <laughs> which is which is commonplace now because it it is the like in the same way that like the Sharknado movies or something like it's cool to make a it's fun to make a purposely bad film or something because you yeah. know oh it's so crazy. But this would have been like one of the first times, <laughs> like as like against an intentionally bad video. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I was yeah. like, no, you have to. Yeah, have to have a cool video. It has to be something which no is money. Gonna, yeah, it was going to click. We get lots of airplay. It's like we're never going to spend zero money on this because yeah. I guess I guess you've got limited amount of TV time on MTV and every band putting out music videos that like you've got to have something which completely clicks, right? Yeah, but again, that would have been in that in that whole kind of ecosystem, something like that would have really stood out. It's like every decision they make feels like the most aggressively wrong one and it pays off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. So uh, we follow this up with... Uh, no, this is definitely one of your favourites on this record, Crack Hitler. It's my favourite song on the album. <laughs> <laughs> it's so... Again, it... The title Crack Hiller sounds so aggressive and weird. Uh, and the lyrics kind of are, but it's also just like a really catchy, funky song. Uh, it fades in, doesn't it, this one as well? It doesn't... Yeah. It, it goes like, in like... Music... 
so many different directions because it kind of starts yep. off like it's got a bit of a um it's bonkers. Like, yeah with the like the bass and like the guitar sound it sort of starts off like it's going for like either like a kind of black exploitation or like a, co- a um i was thinking like shaft it does yeah. like the shaft like uh sort of oh, wait, wait, i don't wait. know how you describe that guitar yeah exactly oh, wait, wait, wait. yeah 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 or, or like a uh like a classic tv cop show yeah uh and then the synth kicks in and the synth yeah, the synth knocks, knocks it completely, yeah. knocks it 180. Yeah, <laughs> the synth is like uh, it's quite like sort of like dramatic, like almost like it's got a spy mm-hmm. thriller type element to it. Yeah, and then Patton's vocals yeah. um, sound like they're being spoken like over like a like a kind I feel of like, he's like got a radio over yeah. his mouth. It, I think it's meant to sound like he's speaking on like a radio, like a Dick Tracy sort of uh, yeah. wrist radio type thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it reminds um, me of um, it's, it's loads of Primus. It's like the vocals in that are so much like Tommy the Cat. Yes, yeah, um, and then also it's got this spoken word breakdown. Where he just got, declares himself that he was a crack Hitler. Hasn't it also got like the um, the kind of like the guitar, like, the, hey. the riff, and then the hay as well? It goes into like a really yeah, random like you, you Yeah, towards the end, it suddenly changes yeah. tempo completely. And he goes like, whoa, hey. It's a bizarre song. I love it. it Which is your big it, like Metallica stadium metal moment. Yeah. In, the, in this fucking song. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense for it to be you, in this part you, of that song. You can song. see why this band was such a huge influence on Dillinger Escape Plan, right? Oh, oh, <laughs> oh for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, also... But also, Kraken is really catchy as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, Do you know what it's about? Someone they knew who was like a black drug dealer, uh, I said like African American who was also a drug dealer, but he referred to himself as like the Hitler of crack. Yeah, he was really proud of it. Really proud apparently of it, they yeah. found it they found it so funny they wanted to just put it into a song regardless uh, of what the song was. I mean I've always liked the lyrics of this one because it does sound like a, a really sort of braggy criminal. Yeah, like <laughs> he's absolutely full of himself. So uh, it's like shoot the eight ball by the lady drink and nobody knows my name. Like, like in but, my head, like is Mike Patton wearing like a, you know like an old zoot suit gangster sort of costume? Yeah, <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, sing the eight ball by the lady drink and nobody knows my name. Bodies yeah. float up from the bottom of the river like bubbles in spine champagne. I mean, there you go. He's the one, no doubt, walking on a tightrope. He's the one, no doubt. Uh, got a gash on my head and a grin on my face and a shadow called Danger. <laughs> you can see why I love this one yeah, so much. Hiding it's in the sheets amazing. on the streets in the heart of every stranger. Uh, and it's it's got, it, it starts as well during that like siren at the beginning. It's got the the flight announcement to Miami. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to stop recording and go listen to just it. Recorded. Yeah, then on the spoken word so, bit, he says, uh, in regards to my uses of the drug, it modified my personality to the extent that I was highly irritable. I was like a crack Hitler. <laughs> God. <on. laughs> Incredible. Just 10 out of 10. Lewis, what were you saying about the flight um, recording? Uh, that was so. That was one that because um, I mean shit, we haven't even spoke about this. Has got like Beastie Boys sampled with mm. um, uh, uh, Simon Garfunkel on like Midlife Crisis and stuff. Um, but on this one, it, that sound recording was done by Roddy Bottom at an airport, and um, the, <laughs> the the attendant that did the announcement hadn't actually signed anything to say you can use my voice in this record. So she did actually try and sue uh, sue the band. Oh wow. I don't she, think it was successful. 
because I guess you're going up with what? Who was this? Warner Brothers, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's probably got lawyer out of any yeah, money. But, but um, <laughs> yeah. So like, it's full of shit. Like, I think he, which is almost kind of like a Mr. Bungle thing. Actually, there's um, there's a track, a Mr. Bungle track. I can't remember which one it is, but it ends with like four minutes of them just recording this walk that they went on and they could just hear some guy like talking about beating his kid. And there's a lot of shit like this in here, which again comes back to that kind of middle America, kind of the dark side of, of these kind of like fringe lifestyles. Right. But she's full of weird shit. From San Francisco as well, which was more so probably then, but now, but such an eclectic city. Yeah. 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 Right. This all, so I just read something that makes a lot more sense now. So there's a whole Wikipedia article, well, part of the article about the samples. And there's a bit at the end of um, Malpractice, which it says here was sampled from the Kronos Quartet. And I've always thought it sounded like the Philip Glass score for um, Candyman. Um, but it couldn't have been that because they came out at the same time. So they wouldn't have had time to sample that film in the end. But it's Kronos Quartet who worked with Philip Glass. So it makes so oh, much more sense okay. now. But it sounds like a, that's really solved a mystery for me. Which bit is it, Nelms? Uh, it's really hard to describe. It's like the sort of... It's the bit at the end of it. I think it's towards the end of it. It almost sounds like um, chanting with like... They're really hard to describe. It's like minimalist orchestral music. But it's all sort of okay. very precision... Because malpractice also it, has that like little moment of calm in the middle where it goes, yeah. Do, 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 oh, maybe it's in the middle then. I can't yeah. remember where it comes into it. And um, then, yeah, right in the middle, then it comes in with like a really crushing riff. Yeah. It, yeah. I've like, always wondered why that sounded so much like a Candyman soundtrack. And now I know. That's really cool. Just an incredibly oh, cool album. Then, yeah, yeah and, uh, ending with Chislobber. Um, should we read the lyrics to that one? Does this does this feel like the natural end of the album? Yes, because of the, I because, really so, I really think it does. So I it wasn't, uh, and that Midnight Cowboy was on the original release. And I think that's a deliberate juxtaposition to have Jizzlobber, which apparently might be. I think it's meant to be about a porn star, but having Midnight Cowboy the soundtrack from you know, a film about a. Um, like a male escort. Uh, but Easy was, which is this version of Easy, their cover of it is probably the most famous track off it. It's probably the big hit, biggest hit. But mm. that was added as a bonus track about a year later. So I think they released that separately. It became a bit of a yeah. hit and then they stuck it on the album. Um, so that's like the weird exception. Though again, I think Easy is a perfect end to this album because it is such a feel-good, <laughs> easy song, right? Lets you catch your breath, doesn't it? Yeah, after you've had so much darkness, it's like the little cherry on top. Again, it it, it sums up their like weird sense of humour. And they don't mm. do what you'd expect them to do because they just do a straight cover of Easy. They don't mess around with it. They don't wink at um, you. It's just a, and why a beautiful version. Because huh? fans were going to gigs expecting them to do war pigs and uh, metal tracks. So like, well, we'll start playing easy then. <laughs> because the so fans want them to do something. They're like, no, fuck you. We'll do something completely opposite. Whereas now I'd lose my mind if they did that and I saw them. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think Jizzlobber ends with, you know, the huge fucking, um, like, fucking like funeral organ yeah. at the end. Yeah. To me, that is just the perfect finisher to this album like 
it, it wraps it up. It just it feels like an end point. But then the Faith No More thing to do wouldn't be to naturally end it. No. So why wouldn't you go into not one but two cover songs? <laughs> you'd to you'd, wrap you'd your cover album. a John Barry instrumental bit <laughs> two, from yeah, a bottom. Two easy listening covers. Yeah. yeah. Like even the fact that I think it it's a slight disservice to the album makes it the complete opposite of that. <laughs> it makes it better for being the wrong thing to do. Yep. You know, every turn they don't do what you'd expect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think where most bands would end it on just Lobber, Faith No More, you know, that's, that's, this is why Faith No More are a genius band. This is why we're celebrating on this episode, right? Yeah. Yep. Also, I think just Lobber is just about a dude wanking in his wank shame. Um. <laughs> well, Mike, Mike Patton says that it's about fear of imprisonment. Mm. I know that Bill, Billy Gold said it's just about a porn star. Yeah. It's definitely, it's <laughs> like, definitely something going on. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's just, just the way it's a song called Jizzlob and it ends with Mike Patton just kind of wailing like I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It, yeah, it's it, it, it's so dark. I think there was like a little bit of the ambiguity that always made it makes it so dark on top of the music as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can't really sure. hear what he's singing that clearly on this one, deliberately so. Yeah, because he, he's screaming um, a lot of the time and the vocals are really heavily and it's distorted like six, as well. Six and a half minutes long as well. Yeah, I love Punishing. the I love the synth that starts with a like psycho. Yep, yeah, lures you in and then just smacks you in the face. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Album. So off the back of this record, uh, they basically got invited onto the Guns N' Roses uh, European tour <laughs> for like Use Your Illusion along with Soundgarden, um, which again was probably just breaking out, and I think that's just like. Again, Faith No More, just like they're 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 a musicians band, right? Yeah, you know, off yes, the back of yes. album, you wouldn't say, "Cool, go tour with Guns N' Roses," who have just released like two, <laughs> not just one, but two of the biggest rock albums like in the world. Stadium right? rock, yeah, yeah. Um, and they were the support band on the infamous Guns N' Roses Metallica tour, which obviously kind of came to an end with uh, a riot uh, after <laughs> Axl Rose refused to to play. Um, but yeah, the idea of them going out on stage supporting Metallica and Guns N' Roses and playing with Soundgarden, or Soundgarden not so much actually, because they've got a bit more of a sense of humor to them, but like playing with those bands and then just singing songs like Be Aggressive and Jizz Lobber and stuff like that is like, <laughs> is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's almost like another big joke, isn't it? They've managed to get away with. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's talking about them constantly being antagonistic as well. MTV did like a four hour behind the scenes making of this thing in anticipation. like, you know, like they were doing the band a favour at the end of the day of like helping hype it all up. Yeah. Um, and and that kind of thing about making them the celebrity, I think was a big thing as to why Jim Martin did leave. Because he said he hated the studio environment of having people like spectating and all of this. I think he also just fucking them, hated Mike Patton as well. Uh, well, <laughs> it seems like the, the two Which, were not meant the for way each we, other. The way we talk about him on this cast... Like, it doesn't surprise me. He sounds like a psychopath. <laughs> but, um, well, <laughs> what I'm about to say just confirms it. But they've got this, like, four-hour making of, which is the driest fucking thing, because all of the footage of the making it is literally unedited shots for, like, 20 to 30 minutes at a time of them, like, going through different keyboard samples and recording, like, 
even as someone that's fascinated just behind like how the you know production and shit like that it's like it's a hard watch but then it's interspersed with interviews with the band and mike Patton went out of his way to make sure that he had the biggest possible sub sandwich and he would wait until asked a question before taking a massive bite of it to then give his answer. <laughs> That's so funny. Everything is so, like, aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And, yeah, we wonder why they, uh, why they didn't become a bigger band. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, but, so, yeah. This ended up being the last album with uh, guitarist Jim Martin, who uh, left the band. You know, a, a big, a big part of that. We said this wasn't a guitar album in the same way that the real thing was, um, and it certainly isn't. Um, but yes, he he kind of uh, he left the band, and I guess this was this would have been like the kind of peak. For, well, not quite the peak. I guess the real thing would have been like their commercial peak, but. Um, I don't think they ever quite hit the heights as they did uh, in terms of like mainstream like attention on the follow-up albums, uh, King for a Day, Four for a Lifetime, and Album of the Year, right? Um, yeah, and it, I, I think it does. I think it misses Jim Martin as well. I think he's a huge part of the sound, and even though his guitar parts on this aren't as much uh, like the the focus of the record as things before it had been it really feels like the glue that keeps mm. all of these tracks feeling consistent even yeah, when I they're agree. polar opposites yeah completely uh, yeah. and w- once you get to because uh, like the next the following albums King for a Day and uh, Album of the Year both had different guitarists on them and there's some good riffs and some good rock songs on there and stuff like that but I don't think of them as guitar albums in the same way that I do um, The Real Thing for example or even uh, even Angel Dust so it definitely is something which makes a huge difference to their sound but in another way those albums are also way more eclectic in a different way maybe not as dark and oppressive and antagonistic uh, but they definitely get weird I mean Cuckoo for Kaka <laughs> on, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> on King for a Day and stuff like that like they they definitely um, they definitely stay aggressive and antagonistic even if it's not quite as Jim Martin didn't come back today. No, no, he didn't. I was just they, looking because to me, Sol Invictus is such a guitar-driven uh, album. It, yeah, it's it's a lot more it's a lot more so I think than the the other two. Yeah, I think the the other two as well. They feel I don't know. It feels less like a melting pot of the group's influences and more like one track might have been written by this guy and one track. Might, I don't know if that's the case. That's just purely conjecture. But it does feel like um, that. Yeah, and I think this, like, Angel Dust is probably the perfect example of how tension in the studio crates are. Like Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that same vibe that you've got these people that aren't gelling musically really at odds, and that's where the interesting stuff happens. Yeah, because I think, um, again, a lot of stuff we've talked about, I can't recommend everyone listens to this album because the way we're describing it sometimes, you could almost see how it could this album could horribly have gone wrong, like at any moment. Mm. I think they make yeah. so many bold moves on it. Um, but I think you're right; that melting pot really puts it all together. Mm. But the, at the same time, though, it's one of those albums where I would recommend it to a lot of people because it's influenced so many bands, which they probably yeah, love. Right? Oh, I'd recommend it to everybody. I think it's absolutely brilliant album. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just describing it is hard sometimes. It, it's one of those weird, <laughs> yeah. weird, one of those weird bands where. They influenced so many bands that went on to have like huge success, but never quite had 
that same mainstream recognition up until mm. the last uh, last few years when everyone cites them as an influence and you realize how big they are and then they kind of get back together and before you know it they're headlining download festival but i mean if you look at like the bands that have covered um uh, their songs we've got like 36 crazy first apocalyptica trade between the buried and me disturbed fighting a death punch halloween corn machine head papa roach revocation you know, those are, that is a pretty diverse uh, What did Five Finger Death Punch cover, does it, does it say? I have uh, to know. <laughs> let me just see. I know they have, I can't remember what it is. I think it might be. It'll probably annoy me. Uh, from out of nowhere. Yeah, I thought it would be like a, a more standard one. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they, <laughs> I didn't they, think they'd approach this. But I was also... really hoping it'd be, be aggressive, because uh, <laughs> they'd be so just angry the if point. they realised what happened. <laughs> Um, like uh, Tobias Forge from Ghost has uh, you know gone on record talking about how much the band means to him. Um, sure, we, I can we, see that. Absolutely. We, I think we talked about how you know Faith No More was like a huge influence on like new metal as well. Uh, maybe more of the previous album, but still, like I think a lot of things like to do with like the samples no, and whatnot I, definitely comes but from don't this record. Say that's right? my pattern. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely not. I, th- I think this man. If if you think about um, the. Shit, look at Midlife Crisis, what Mike Patton's doing in the verse, where he's singing, the placement of his voice, the the really rhythmic elements of it. That's fucking... That 100% huge uh, influence on new metal. In fact, you mentioned Disturbed. That's like David Draymond's <laughs> yeah, kind of deal for deal, verses, yeah. right? That's yeah. why it's a good cover. Um, yeah. But yeah, Limp Bizkit, Korn, Deftones, um, Slipknot, uh, System of a Down... Like, uh, say, we talked about, not again, not a new metal band, but stuff like Dillinger Escape Plan and, like, the whole mathcore scene. Like, they took that eclectic vibe from uh, from Facebook yeah, Mall and they, they turned it into something completely new. They're just, uh, yeah, absolutely insane band. So I think as weird as this album sounds, funnily enough, though, it's not as heavy as some of the bands they influence. It's maybe not as weird in places as some of these bands or as aggressive, but nothing is quite as cohesively odd as Angel Dust either. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and and so naturally weird as well. That's it. I think I think where it's it's not as heavy as some things, but in other ways, it's way heavier. Like mm. the content is a lot darker than most of the like the heaviest. Jizz lobber. It's <laughs> like, but it's but even the, the lyrics in that are all really miserable. Yeah. Um and we, I, again, we're saying this, we're using a lot of words like challenging and miserable and all that. It's really fucking good. It's That's so what I mean. Good. Everyone should listen to it if they haven't. Yeah. And not just take our word for it because we all love it so much, but it's really hard. We're doing our best we can, but it's really hard to describe. Yeah, absolutely. Quite the feeling of this album when you listen to it. It's one of the, it's the most ominous record I've ever heard. Yes. But really catchy. Om- ominous, ominous is a perfect way to describe it. Absolutely and really catchy perfect. at the same time. <laughs> and whatever tries to be ominous and whatever tries to sound evil and brooding, you know it's it's written to be that way. Whereas mm. this just feels, like you said, Jim, it's so natural that there's just this horrible overtone throughout the whole thing. Yeah. It, like it's an unsettling record even when it's at its most commercial sounding yes absolutely i don't know how you do that (laughs) (laughs) lightning in a bottle for anyone who hasn't heard this album uh, before and checks out off the back of this or is a fan and wants to share their take on it or maybe hasn't listened to it in a while or listened to it from like our perspective you know and hopefully this kind of opened your eyes up a little bit yeah we would absolutely love to hear from you because it's such a weird one we could talk about it for hours and hours if we have um but I think we're probably running out of time. <laughs> I think we are, yeah. 
<laughs> well, before before we get into any last thoughts, uh, I figured we would probably want to hear if there's another perspective on <gasps> such a great record. <laughs> so here we go. This was the hardest alternative opinion I've ever had to try and find. <laughs> like, they're the only one-star reviews for this album are about it being remastered and not sounding as good. There are, like, no <laughs> bad reviews for this album. I did find one, though. Uh, it's still only a two-star, and this is from Lola63, courtesy of Amazon. Uh, it says, not for me, very erratic. Uh, is the title. And it says, heard somebody say this is kind of like a corn band. Not at all. Don't like it. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if you're going in expecting that, yeah, if you're going in expecting that, that's a bad friend who ever said it sounds like a corn album. Um, erratic is the word, but I'd use it in a positive way for this. Yes. Yeah. So, guys, final final thoughts on uh, Faith No More's Angel Dust. Yeah, I would say that I, I love this record. It's, it was a huge influence on a lot of bands I love. Uh, for anyone out there who is into bands, you know, a bit we listed that have been influenced, but maybe haven't given this record a go, or only kind of knows Faith No More for like the hits, like um, Real Thing and Easy, um, then yeah, absolutely go check out this record. Get ready to spend yep. an hour feeling very uncomfortable, but hopefully yep. curious to go back and listen to it a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I would say do take the time to listen to the whole album in, in one go, like rather than just, you know, listen to bits and pieces of it. it. It really does work as a whole album and you'll get the full effect of feeling. Um, well, I don't know how you'll feel at the end of it. To be, Everything. Yeah. You'll run the whole gamut that way. Um, but again, really catchy, but also <laughs> some of the songs are exhausting to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10. But what do you the audience think about Faith No More's Angel yeah. Dust. Uh, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, remember, you can get in touch with us directly via slowlyrock at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, where we are at slowlyrock. We're on Instagram, we are at slowlywerockpodcast. Um, genuinely, would love to hear your thoughts about this. If you've listened to this album because of us, then that is super, super cool, and I'd love to know how that first introduction to this goes uh like, yeah. like we said i hope you set it up well it is challenging um but it's it's just sheer perfection and if you already know this album then we also want to hear from you um honestly we absolutely love when you guys get in touch and any way that you guys can help us is amazing recommend us to a friend if you could drop us a little five star review on itunes that's always nice just want to give a real big shout out as well uh to roberta who's just been an awesome awesome uh support of what we've been doing for so long so thank you so much bert and gents this has been a joy yeah i'm just probably gonna go listen to it again yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like we're on a bit of a roll at the minute as well gents I think we are, yeah. We've got a few yeah. things in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. There's one which I'm not... There's one coming up which I'm not as keen on, but I know <laughs> is a big one for you, Lewis, so I'm really looking forward to getting to that one. Damn it, Jim. A little teaser. <laughs> <laughs> let's just... I don't want to spoil it for our listeners, but let's just say I know Lewis has been Tom DeLonging <laughs> to talk about this record for a while now. Angels and Airwaves. Let's yeah. do this. <laughs> Box <Boxcar racer. laughs> Sounds like you might be barkering up the wrong tree, Jim. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, <laughs> but we no, got I just Mark Hoppers out of here. I just did it. You just stepped all over it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.